0: Physics world. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I explore the controversy surrounding the use of chatbots in academia with a theoretical physicist who uses the artificial intelligence systems. And I also look at how deteriorating facilities at the United States National Institute of Standards and Technology are having a negative effect on the research being done there. Large language models, also called chatbots, have been in the headlines recently as concerns grow about their use or misuse in academia. To chat about the role that chatbots could play in the physics community, I'm joined down the line from the University of York by the theoretical physicist Matt Hodgson. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Matt, I have to admit, I really don't know much about uh, large language model models um, or what most people call chatbots. So c- could you give us a, a sort of a simple description of, of what they are and, and what they can do? Sure.
1: Um, so a large language model is a type of artificial intelligence Um, the goal of the model is to generate human-like text uh, in response uh, to prompts from a user. So this could be uh, answering questions, uh, writing emails, even writing poems and stories. Um, So as a result, it has to be trained on a large amount of text data. In other words, given uh, various examples of uh, written text written by a human, um, and it tries to learn that behavior. So chatbots have actually been around for quite a while. Uh, They're usually used in uh, customer service. You might have uh, had a problem with your bank account or something, and you've gone online, and the usual thing that they try and get you to do is to talk to the chatbot. Because in principle, if it's a frequently asked question, the chatbot knows how to answer that. There's a definite, clear answer. So it's obviously a cost-effective way of Doing it rather than you speaking to a person. However, more often than not, you end up having to speak to a person because the chatbot isn't sophisticated enough to answer a question that's never come up before. So it is intelligent in that sense, but obviously its intelligence is, uh, at least at the moment, somewhat limited. Um, There are obviously other examples, Uh, 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 one that's been uh, making headlines recently is is ChatGPT. It's the same sort of idea, but uh, in this case, it's trained on an enormous amount of data uh, accessed via the Internet. Um, For the current version of ChatGPT, it's trained on data up to uh, 2021. And as a result, uh, ChatGPT can uh, perform a a wider variety of tasks compared to these chatbots you you encounter with your uh, customer service.
0: And Matt, your your research, um, I suppose your day job, is doing research on quantum fundamentals. How did you become interested in chatbots? And do you use them in your research? Or is this sort of a sideline for you?
1: Yes. So in my research, I have used... Artificial intelligence, not in the case of chatbots, but for what we call neural networks, um, which are used in training any artificial intelligence. Um, But in this case, we were using them to look at very complex mathematical relationships. So it's a different context, but it's the same idea. In the case of a chatbot, you have um, uh, the patterns between language and speech. Um, whereas I'm used to using them, looking at the patterns in mathematics. Um, however, uh, I became aware of the potential of chatbots fairly recently, actually, um, because a colleague of mine who is uh, involved in um, artificial intelligence much more uh, thoroughly than I am, um, drew drew my attention to specifically ChatGPT. So, I'd never taken them particularly seriously, I must admit. Um, But I instantly saw the potential, knowing what they can achieve in terms of looking at advanced mathematical relationships. So I really started just playing around with it. And just like uh, any researcher, you just play with these things and uh, whether it turns out to be a useful tool or not. Uh, In this case, it did. And I realized I could use it for almost everything I do. of course, I'm not saying I obsessively use it now, and I use nothing else. Uh, but it's a useful uh, companion to have on your desktop. Um, so I could use it for writing emails um, or summarizing a long email if I don't have time to read it. If I'm rushing off to give a lecture, I could summarize. I could ask the chatbot to summarize it uh, in just a couple of bullet points. Um, of course, you know you have to be uh, aware of what it is, and it's a language-based model, it's text-based. Um, so you can't expect it to solve advanced mathematical expressions. It isn't designed to do that. But what it is designed to do is, for example, if I write uh, an abstract for a conference and I realize it's actually uh, limited to 500 characters, not 1,000, uh, and I've left it to the last minute, I can give it to chatbot and say, make this uh, into 500 characters, and it will do it. Of course, I always reread it just to make sure it hasn't introduced anything that I don't like. Um, So I've seen the potential of it and now I'm using it on a daily basis.
0: And Matt, um, I mean, it sounds like it could be a very useful tool um, in education, both for lecturers like yourself and also students Um, to. Do we know how chatbots are being used um, in physics education at the university level?
1: Yes. Um, So in short, in my opinion, they're not being used to the extent that they should be. So they are being used, but I feel like uh, in academia, to some extent, we've been uh, caught off guard a little bit by the explosion of, of, for example, chat GPT. Um, and to an extent, we're now uh, playing catch-up uh, and we have to protect the academic integrity of our courses. However, they are being used. Um, an example would be to improve academic writing. So you, know, you might have a, a lab report that you want feedback on um, and a student could use it personally to receive uh, real-time feedback on their writing. So for example, they write a, a, an abstract, uh, and they put it into chat BT, at GPT and say, is that a good abstract? And it will give them feedback. They have to bear in mind, of course, it might not be marking it or assessing it uh, in the same way that we would. It's trained on data uh, all over the world, so it might uh, mark it in a more American uh, style, but it will give valid feedback. Um, it depends how good a writer you are, of course. If you're already a very good writer and you put it into Chatbot, you might be disappointed. You might think it's a bit pedestrian. Um, but for a student who's learning how to write and learning how to write in an accessible way, it can be a very useful tool in that respect. Um, of course, um, the more you use Chatbot and the better you get at writing, the less that you might feel you need to use it. So. The chat GPT might start training you on how to write, um, and you might only use it in very specific cases. For example, you don't have much time or something. Um, I found it particularly useful uh, for writing computer code. So when we say language, it, that can actually have quite a broad um, range of, of, of meanings. So we normally oh, think that's interesting. We normally think about it as written speech, but you could also think about it as as, as code or even uh, human code, DNA, for example. Now, I haven't used it for that, but I'm aware it can be. So, you know, if there's a code that you need to write, you could ask uh, ChatGPT to look over your code and it could identify uh, mistakes in your code. So it's a little bit like having a private tutor who's there to say, okay, there's a mistake there. And you might even say, well, you know, how do I improve that? Uh, remember, it's designed to mimic a human. So you can have a conversation with it, and you can work together to, to develop a, a better code than you maybe otherwise would have achieved. Um, I think what it's not good at, and what I would always um, warn my students not to trust it uh, too much, would be uh, for doing maths. Um, It's a language-based model, it can do maths, it has been trained on examples where people have performed mathematical derivations, but that's really not what it's designed to do. And we have other tools like Wolfram Alpha that's been around for a long time. So I think um, large language models and chatbots are are seen in academia as an exciting new tool uh, and they're there to make our lives easier and increase productivity.
0: So, Matt, um, th- there's been a lot of talk in the media uh, and also on social media about um, the-, the potential for cheating by students using chatbots. Um, it- it- do you think that that's something that's a real threat in, in physics education? And um, what-, what-, what could we do to-, to try to prevent students from using chatbots in that way?
1: Yeah, that's a brilliant question. When you start using a new tool, um, you have to think about any, of course, any negative consequences from that. I think uh, to a large extent in physics, we don't have that problem, but we can't become too complacent. So for example, uh, tools like Wolfram Alpha have been around for a long time. uh, And in some respects for a physicist, that's a more effective cheating tool because it can perform uh, quite advanced mathematical derivations. During the pandemic, for example, we had to adapt to um, allowing students to use these tools because they were doing their assessments at home. There's no way of policing that. So rather than uh, asking them not to use it or assuming they won't use it, we changed the way we assess. And I think those some of those lessons, at least, um, we, can, we can take here uh, and we can uh, use what we've learned throughout the pandemic and treat it in a very similar way. And I think um, one of the biggest lessons uh, and uh, something that we are pushing towards, and I know the Institute of Physics is also keen uh, for us to do, is to return to closed book exams. And I think that's very important. Uh, it's maybe now more important than uh, it was because we cannot allow students to cheat themselves. So the way I would see it is that the, the issue around uh, cheating is more of a problem for first years and second year uh, undergraduate physicists, because these are the students who need to learn the basic knowledge. Once you get to that to the third year or fourth year, we're more than happy for our students to use these tools, like Wolfram Alpha or, or solving a problem numerically. It might be the only option. Um, and I think chatbots come into the same category. We're, we're happy in the same way that I use it day to day. We're very keen for our students to do that and become uh, effective workers. However, if they start using it early on and don't learn the fundamental skills, they're really cheating themselves. And I and I think the analogy of the of calculator is a good one here. So calculators came out, there was a worry that students would no longer know how to do maths. And it was a valid concern because if you don't know how to multiply two numbers together, how can you do more advanced topics like algebra? If you don't know what two times three is, how do you know what x times y is? So it's a case of they have to know the principle, um, the principles behind the the technique before they can go on and do more advanced stuff. So it's um a really important that we stress to our students that they have to practice this uh, fundamental skills. And going back to chatbots, that includes writing abstracts, writing introductions, Um, you know, if you don't know how to perform a literature review because you get your chatbot to do it. How do you know you're reading a good literature review? You, you don't. So uh, before we can have our students rely on these really important tools, we have to ensure that they're, they're learning the basics. And I think closed book exams are really important for that, but also to an extent we need to think really hard about how we're going to change the way we assess things like lab reports. You know, do we now start, uh, looking at closed-book lab reports, or do we assess higher-level skills? We're looking for deep analysis that uh, a chatbot cannot do.
0: And Matt, you mentioned that um, th- th- there are benefits of using chatbots, particularly for more senior undergraduate students. Do you, can you think of any, any examples of, of universities using chatbots with, with their students to, to help them learn?
1: Absolutely yes. I think the biggest advantage that comes to mind is the improvement of academic writing. Um, so this could include for a student, it could um, it could be that you know you like you write some uh, lab instructions. You know we have maybe two hundred. 250 students in the lab, and you have to write instructions that are accessible to, to all of them, um, especially if they come from a diverse range of backgrounds or, or, or they speak different um, languages. We obviously expect them to, to speak English, but their interpretation of instructions might be slightly different. And we don't want to alienate our students on something as trivial as that. So you could write lab instructions and you could give it to a chat bot and you could say, you know, are these clear or can you improve these? And it could rewrite them. It's kind of like running it past a uh, hundred or a thousand people before you do it. And then when you give it to, of the order of a hundred students, you're at least increasing the odds that they're more accessible to those, those students. Um, They could also be used uh, in the same way for lecture notes. And as I've already mentioned, um, writing uh, code. Um, The other day, I I was giving a lecture on solving Schrodinger's equation. Um, So you you make the derivation, you you get this result, and it's uh, basically an infinite sum of sine waves. And even the most gifted physicist will look at that and it doesn't necessarily mean very much. So the natural thing to do is to is to plot it, but in this case, it's a time-dependent solution. So I thought, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give the, um, the solution I found, I'll give it to ChatGPT and ask it to write a Python code that generates a GIF, and it did it. I think it had one mistake that I had to correct, and it generated this GIF showing the evolution of the wave function over time. And it's not that I couldn't have done that before, but it's time-consuming. Um, so I could do maybe what would take me half an hour now in five minutes. And that gives me the opportunity to improve the quality of my lectures. I can look at more interesting examples, or if I want to change it, so it's a different example next year. I know there isn't that work barrier in the way of, I just don't have time to do it. So I think it's really exciting in, in, in that sense that it's, it's a way of accelerating the, some of maybe the more laborious parts of, of the process, um, and as I've already mentioned, it could be used um to get to provide feedback to students beyond what lecturers have capacity to achieve. Um, and I just to reiterate, I think improving the accessibility of scientific writing is is really a, a, a crucial point. Um and I'm very excited to see what it can do in that respect.
0: That's a really interesting point, Matt, because um you know you, you often do hear stories about um so artificial intelligence systems working uh against diversity because um you know i i suppose they use what what's available out there at the moment and yeah i, I suppose uh, you know a crude example would be that um uh they would use he to refer to a physicist um but you you seem to be saying that 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 we can turn that on its head and we can actually use uh, Chatbots to 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 boost diversity rather than um, narrow things down.
1: In in principle, yes. I mean, we always have to be careful. Um, it depends on the data from which the model is trained. If the data has implicit biases, so to take your example, if the chatbot saw every time you mention a physicist, he, you've not got good data. You you've you've trained your model poorly, and I'm not suggesting. Chatbots have this, but just hypothetically, and then it would have those biases in there. Uh, so we can't become complacent and think, oh, I don't need to think about that anymore. The chatbot does it for me. But certainly if it's trained well, um, and if we have companies like Google with with Bard, that's hopefully going to be released very soon, we have uh, a certain amount of trust there that they will train it on good data. And then you're right. In principle, you know, say you you were really sloppy and you and you didn't write very inclusive language, you could just give it to the chatbot and say, "Make this inclusive." Um, I would always be uh, very wary to my colleagues and myself, of course, to then not allow that to make you complacent. You need to be. Uh, as progressive as the chatbot is, but it could be there to catch our other biases that you know we all have unconscious biases. So it could it could even tell you, uh, yeah, this is a bit biased because of X, Y, Z. Oh, I didn't even realize that.
0: And and so if undergraduates are, are being trained in in the use of chatbots, or at least encouraged to use them, I'm guessing that that means that when they embark on research careers, they're going to use chatbots to. Um, to write papers, uh, academic papers that they submit to journals. Um, it, uh, it, do you see that as a good thing? Or are, are there some inherent problems in that? Um, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, for example, uh, creativity and how a chatbot could sort of knock creativity on its head in a, in a paper. And also plagiarism, I suppose, uh, could be a problem. Are those issues that, that, that you're aware of? So, I think
1: there shouldn't be a lot of concern around this, but again, we shouldn't become too complacent. Um, so I think the peer review process that we already have um, now has to play uh, just as crucial a role as it ever did. Um, Whenever you submit a paper, it gets reviewed by several referees. And the idea there is to identify the accessibility of the paper, how well it's written, whether the science is valid, basically looking for for bogus research or even research that um, the authors have submitted in in good, um, with all the best intentions in the world, but uh, there's an error in there, an error in the logic. So I think to an extent the peer review process already safeguards against this. However, you're right, we certainly don't want to stifle creativity. um, And that is a danger when, when something is doing parts of your job for you. However, I would say what we should be aiming for is just like the calculator and, of course, the, the computer is that it can accelerate that process, so it gives us the opportunity to be even more creative and make even more progress than we otherwise would have done and this is what a tool is right Every tool is there designed to make um, work more productive and uh, we shouldn't rely entirely on the tool to do the job. the tool is there for the the crafts the craftsperson to to use it. And, and to create something from that. So, I think um, I don't see necessarily uh, cheating as a problem because um, of the peer review process. However, it could be um, that because these chatbots are so accessible, um, journals might see an enormous increase in kind of bogus papers that are written entirely by AI, and that could be a real problem for them. And I think the way they need to safeguard against that is to have AI scan the paper just to uh, provide a filtration process just to get the numbers down. Um, Otherwise they could easily become overwhelmed.
0: And Matt, um, you know people who review papers um, they're busy uh, they might be tempted to run the paper through a, a chat bot and ask, uh, "Is this a good paper?" I mean do, do you think that that is a good idea? Could that create some weird feedback loop uh, <laughs> yeah. that could overwhelm uh, scientific publishing do, I mean do you think that that would happen? Would it be a useful tool for you if you if you were reviewing a paper?
1: Yeah, you run this risk of, you know, the the chatbot writes the paper, the chatbot reads the paper, and and humans never do anything. Um, So I think like with anything, if it's abused to that extent, then it is a problem. Um, And I would like to think that a good scientist would never dream of doing that. But that doesn't mean that the scientist couldn't um, run the paper through a chatbot just to see, you know, what it gives you. you. You don't have to listen to what it says. So there's no danger in doing that, but there is a danger in relying on it to do the process for you. Um, I haven't personally done that myself. I would be tempted, I mean, certainly with the abstract, I could say, is this a very accessible abstract? But, I mean, I'm going to read it anyway. I'm going to read it multiple times. Um, I think regarding the review process, I can't see a chatbot being that effective. However, I could be tempted maybe to put, if, if a paper was particularly poorly written, uh, and I mean in terms of accessibility, it's not clear, you know, you tend to get this with experts who are in the thick of it. Oh, this is clear, this is obvious, you know, uh, it's trivial for the reader to prove. And then another expert looks at it and thinks, well, it's not actually trivial. Um, I'd be tempted to put in my my future uh, reviews that there's no excuse now really for the abstract, especially to be written in an inaccessible way. Because these tools are, are readily available,
0: and recently um, there's been a flurry of activity um, amongst scientific publishers coming up with with policies uh, to deal with with chatbots in, in in writing papers. And and these policies tend to require the authors to document how they've used the chatbot and and dec- declare that in in, in the paper. Do, do you think that that's a, a good idea? Is that sort of enough to, um, to let people know how the, the paper was written?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think to an extent it's not necessary. Um, I think as these tools become more widespread, we never declare, the computer did my calculations for me, it's just taken as a standard. So I think to that extent, why should it matter if you have a tool that helps you with your writing? And I think, again, uh, the answer is the peer review process, that if the peer review process works uh, correctly, it should be able to identify a literature review that's been entirely written by AI. you know, it's part of the process now to say, well, you're missing this key paper, or where did that come from, or well, that's not quite true. How do you know that? So all these questions can still be asked, um, and I think the, the the issue there becomes identifying scientists who are relying on AI to do it entirely for them, um, which is a, which is a problem. But I don't see why. If a conscientious scientist says, "Yes, I've used a chatbot to help me with you know improve my introduction, I don't really know what that adds to the reader other than well good. I'm glad it's I'm glad it's uh, uh, um, improved the accessibility, but I'm still going to read it just as carefully. And uh, in fact, I might read it more carefully because um, it's actually written in a more accessible way. So I could, in principle identify, Ah, well. When you write it like that, I'm not sure I quite agree with that. But if it's written in a really inaccessible way, well, maybe I don't have time to scrutinise every sentence. I'm just going to let it pass. So there could be um, positives in that respect that don't require uh, human intervention and, and, and you know further policies in order to try and control it.
0: And I mean, one thing that that I thought of when I you know sort of sort of first became aware of, of the issue in academic publishing is that. These chatbots could actually be be a great leveler in terms of, um, you know, scientists, maybe their English is not their first language and they struggle a bit to write good English. And then people whose English is their first language, but also struggle to write, could really benefit from this. Um, So, you you know, it sort of disentangles being a good scientist from being able to write uh, good English. And and that, that must be a good thing.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, this this is a common theme, really, of the the accessibility of the language, and and I think um, certainly if it helps our colleagues who who have had to learn a foreign language in order to um, write a paper, you know, I I think we're very lucky in that we can write in our native language, but uh, that sometimes, as you say, doesn't actually make that big a difference. I've known colleagues who are wonderful at explaining things. Um, in, in English, when it's not their first language, and maybe in that respect, it's to their advantage because they're not overusing uh, convoluted words. They they think very carefully about how they write. Um, so I think that's definitely a positive, and I would and I would hope that it improves. Uh, um, the accessibility for scientists who are maybe in a country where they can't afford to get an education in English, um, there will certainly be advantages there. But as you say, even for native speakers who are just poor communicators, it's a shame that they could have a brilliant idea. If they can't communicate it, it doesn't really count for anything. Um, and that's obviously a shame for humanity. If we if we solve these problems, but no one ever finds out about it, well, OK, we have to wait for the next person to solve it. And hopefully they're a good communicator. So I think it can have the potential to speed up technological advancement because it can speed up the exchange of knowledge. It can make it more efficient. And I think it's recognized in academic writing, certainly in physics, that the accessibility of our papers is is poor compared to the quality of the research. And that becomes a bottleneck then because you're not exchanging this knowledge as as quickly. Um, and there's a real push, rightly so, to, to have interdisciplinary work. Uh, if I speak to a chemist about my work, because it overlaps, if I'm using words they don't understand, it can be a real slog for them to try and understand what I'm doing, where if I just use the same word as them, they would instantly get it so I could say to the chatbot, um, okay, I've, I've written my uh, uh, abstract for this conference, but I've realised it's a chemistry conference more than a, a, a physics conference. Rewrite it in, in the language of a chemist, and it can have a go at that. At the minute, I would be always cautious because it might make it might change the meaning of what I've written. But remember, we're in the early days of these chatbots. More sophisticated chatbots will come out, and especially if it's for a conference. You could maybe then it would be good to say, oh, by the way, I used uh, um, ChatGPT t- t- to improve the accessibility of this. I could see in that case it would be very important to tell your colleagues that because they could always come up to you after your talk and say, yeah, but didn't realize we mean this actually. But at least it's a step in the right direction rather than me standing up for half an hour and explaining something that they just think I didn't understand any of those words you use because they're technical words. Why would they know? They have different words for them. So I think absolutely it's a very positive um, tool we have, which has a lot of potential here. We just have to be responsible when using it.
0: Oh, well, that's that's really interesting, Matt. I I never thought of that that last point about about a sort of inclusion across different disciplines. But yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking about chatbots. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. I've really learned a lot.
1: My my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
0: I've visited physicists in many places during my time at Physics World, and Boulder, Colorado must be one of my favorite destinations. Nestled up against the Rocky Mountains, Boulder is home to one of the main labs of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. In 2019, I had a fantastic tour of the Boulder campus and enjoyed chatting to some of the many scientists who work there. While the buildings were slightly scruffy here and there, I was left with the impression of a no-nonsense facility, where the focus was on scientific and engineering excellence, rather than grand atriums. Unfortunately, it seems that some of the wear and tear at NIST is more than superficial. A new study by the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine has found that roughly two-thirds of NIST's facilities in Colorado and Maryland fail to meet acceptable standards for building conditions. In one lab in Boulder, for example, humidity is so low that the resulting static charge makes it impossible for researchers to operate a key instrument in the winter. In another, leaks and floods have destroyed instruments and forced the agency to abandon a basement room that was being used for research on quantum computing. The study was led by the structural engineer Ross Karotis, who says that the deterioration poses a serious threat to the high standard of research that NIST is renowned for. The study endorses NIST's request to the U.S. government for an extra $300 to $400 million in annual funding for the next decade. Indeed, Caratas and colleagues suggest that an additional $120 to $150 million per year will also be needed to prevent further deterioration and obsolescence of NIST's infrastructure. You can read more about the study on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, From National Treasure to Failing Facilities. NIST labs are deficient, says report. Also new on the website is a feature article that looks at what can happen when a postgraduate student runs out of funding before they finish their PhD. Written by the Physics World columnist and University of Nottingham PhD student Carol Green, The article includes three personal histories of what went wrong and how students survived with no funding. The article is called Stress, Overwork, and No Support. What happens when your PhD funding runs out? And Carol will also appear on an upcoming episode of the Physics World Stories podcast to discuss this issue, which appears to affect a significant number of PhD students. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Matt Hodgson for joining me today, and a special thanks to our producer Fred Isles. The podcast will return again next week when I will be in conversation with two physicists who would like to send more quantum memories into space. Physics world.